Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. In October 2015, Richard Sikorsky was in his 60s. He had gray hair and a gray mustache. He was slight. He looked like a runner. He'd run the Chicago Marathon more than a dozen times, signed up for it every year. He had the kind of active lifestyle that so many of us hope to have as we age. But that was before the 2015 race. That same year, Angie Bernadis was running the Chicago Marathon, her first. She was younger, in her early 30s at that point. She had short brown hair and tattoos covering one arm and both thighs. She was wearing all black, a tank top and shorts, and a bright yellow hat on backwards. She came upon Richard right after mile seven. I was running along and I looked ahead and I saw a big commotion ahead of me. And so I took my earphones off just so I can kind of listen in on what was going on. And I heard somebody yell, um, somebody call 911. So I stopped to see what was going on, and I saw uh, Richard, he was on the ground, and so I had stepped in, and I began to try to resuscitate him uh, with mouth-to-mouth. He was resting on the asphalt, on his back, in the middle of the road. Some runners gathered and others streamed around him. Richard didn't have a pulse. Running a marathon, and he's got to be at least be in his 60s. He should be really healthy. What's going on here? Why, you know, what's happening? Um, and, you know, and from my professional opinion, based on what I've seen, I was kind of guessing he might have been suffering from a heart attack. Angie is a nurse. Um, so I was kind of concerned, you know, what, with him being a runner, I wonder what's wrong with his heart. Eventually, paramedics arrived, and Angie backed away from the fit man with silver hair. When she left him, he still didn't have a pulse. I figured it was the best thing at that time was just for me to continue to run and just pray for him. And um, that's kind of what I did the whole run was just pray for him. And once I finished the run, the first thing I did was just like look at my phone to see if there was anything online that I could find about, you know, what happened. And she found nothing. She wasn't sure if her mouth to mouth made any difference at all. But that was marathon day. The night before, Richard Sikorsky was still very much alive. In fact, he was milling around the race expo. Yeah, he'd picked up his bib and shirt for the next day's race, but he wasn't sure if he was going to run it. Cindy, you know that expo well. I do indeed. I've run this marathon four times and spectated five. Runners World readers will recognize your name. This is... Cindy Kuzma. Based in Chicago. And on the podcast to help tell our first story of season three. And to do that, let's go back to the expo. Richard was 66 in 2015. He'd run the Chicago Marathon so many times he'd lost count. Typically, he'd prepare by following a plan from Runner's World. True story. Or a plan he found in a running book. 
Richard had a shelf full of them, written by running gurus like Jeff Galloway and Hal Higdon. But in 2015, he was a bit off his game. Life had been busier than usual. He'd had extra projects around the house, and he was tending to rental properties he owned around the city. He'd been able to squeeze in a few training runs a week, but it was by no means his usual ramp up. The longest run he'd done in the weeks beforehand? 12 miles. I mean, all those books and those Runner's World plans, they usually recommend at least 20. Even that 12-miler didn't go very well. Here's Richard's daughter, Anna. It wasn't till short time before that he started feeling more tired and, um, you know, the chest pains, like it was harder to get up and go do things. Um, but we did not think, we didn't think that it was this bad. No, he didn't, he himself didn't think it was this bad. And Richard and his family thought maybe 66 is when your body slows down. But Richard went to the expo anyway. He wasn't really planning to run the race. He picked up his bib and his shirt. Still not planning to run. But you know how expos are. Six months of training all leading up to one event. For one person, there's nervous energy, excitement, and then multiply that by the 45,000 people who run this race every year. There's a lot of joy at a marathon expo for sure. So Richard is weaving through people in booths selling energy gels and compression socks. There's music blaring in the background. He's at the expo alone. He usually goes with his wife, but she didn't join him that year. So he's people watching. I mean, the place is packed with runners and their families. And he notices this one couple. They're young. They have a young kid. Uh, They must have been in their 30s. And, you know, Richard, he's 66. So he's looking at them, and they're looking just young and vibrant and and alive. And he really wants to to be around them and, and soak up some of that energy. So he starts wondering if, you know, maybe he shouldn't run the race after all. I mean, he knew he hadn't trained well enough to run his best time. But he figured if he took it easy, enjoyed himself, sure, he could cover 26.2. And so the decision was made. As soon as Richard left the expo, he called his wife. He told her, change of plans. It's pasta for dinner. The marathon, it's on. Now... We don't know what would have happened if he had shrugged his shoulders at that young couple, if he had watched the marathon on TV instead of participating in it. But we do know what happened on the path he did choose. That last-minute decision to run the 2015 Chicago Marathon was perhaps the most consequential of his whole life. I'm Rachel Swaby. And I'm Cindy Kuzma. And this is Human Race. On Human Race, we tell stories about runners and the world of running. This week begins with Richard Sikorsky and a marathon cut short. But we tend to think that a man on the ground without a pulse, that's the end. But where Richard's race stopped, another one began. This is the story of one man's collapse and how that violent fall and the stillness afterwards compelled people to leap into action. All with the distant hope that they could save his life. But on Marathon Morning, October 11, 2015, nobody involved knows yet just how much is at stake or the important part they'll play. 3 a.m. George Champas gets out of bed. 
has dark hair and olive skin. He's on the short side. He's gone to sleep just two hours earlier. George walks to the window of his hotel room. I look out across Grand Park, um, and, and I think about 45,000 runners, um, and I try to put a face uh, to each and every one of them. And I think about their families. I think about why they're running, who they're running for. Um, I really do. <clears throat> and, you know, my, you know, I say a small prayer that, you know, I hope everyone can get through that day uh, because it's a very challenging day. George is the medical director of the Chicago Marathon, has been for 10 years, which means it's his job to take care of each runner's health. George doesn't know it then, but in less than seven hours, a runner, Richard Shikorsky, will have a sudden cardiac arrest. As far as sudden cardiac arrest, even outside of marathoning, it's the leading cause of death in, in the United States. Um, and, and in marathoning, when you bring 45,000 runners that are going to participate in a 26.2-mile uh, event, uh, the, the incidents could be anywhere between 1 in 100,000 to 1 in 200,000 based on which study you, you, know, you look at. Um, with that being said, we know that the chances of that occurring on race day um, are there. So back in 2015... George gets ready, and then he goes downstairs to pick up a cup of coffee. That's one of about five or so that would get him through the day. He leaves the hotel and walks across the street to the Chicago Marathon's command center. Command center sounds like some NASA ground control type operation. It is. It, it very much is. There are 15 to 20 screens, as well as radios, phones, laptops, maps. Uh, weatherman, so we can see real-time weather. Ham radio operators. And importantly, the heads of every major organization involved on race day. So you've got someone there from the ambulance company, from sanitation, from the Red Cross, and so on and so on. If some issue arises, all of the people who need to work together are in one location. Planning for this one day takes a year. It's a massive task that requires collaboration with lots of organizations and hundreds of volunteers. It's about putting the right people and resources in the right place to prevent injuries, to treat anything that comes up, and to react quickly if something terrible happens. Think of it like planning the Super Bowl halftime show, but with runners' lives at stake. And on that day in 2015, it was showtime. 4 a.m. Marathoners all over the greater Chicago area start rolling out of bed. Richard is one of them. Richard has been at this a while, so he's got his race morning routine down. He laid out a black and yellow shirt, black and white Nikes, and white socks that hit him mid-calf the night before. By 5 a.m., he's dressed and ready to go. His bib has his emergency contact information on the back. His wife had urged him to fill it out. Which is kind of crazy. She'd never asked him to do that before. But other than that, his morning looks a lot like it has most other times he's run it. He drinks a cup of coffee, eats a small breakfast. Completely unaware that for him, the day's race would stop suddenly. 5.30 a.m., back at the marathon start. Around 2,000 medical tent volunteers have arrived. They break into groups and huddle with medical leaders, physicians, nurses, athletic trainers, and George, the medical director. In these groups, George and his colleagues do this sort of pump-up slash reminder of what's important. Like, don't forget where those 150 defibrillators are. Defibrillator? Defibrillator? Defibrillators? <laughs> yeah, defibrillators. It's a really hard word to say. <laughs> but these huddles are also a reminder of how important volunteers are. The way the volunteers, the medical staff, and the people at the command center respond can mean the difference between life and death. 
Wow, that that's intense. Well, yeah, it is. But there's a historical reason for that. Historical. Okay, let me guess. 2007. Yes, the 2007 Chicago Marathon. It's kind of an infamous day in Chicago running history. So a little background. Ten years ago, the Chicago Marathon landed on the hottest October 7th in history. There were about 30,000 runners, fewer of them because it was so hot. Um, They were running on a day that reached over 80 degrees. Race organizers planned for this, but still, the conditions just pushed the infrastructure past its limits, and everyone started scrambling. Right, yeah, so volunteers couldn't keep up with the runners' demands for water, and cups ran out. I didn't run that year, but my friends who did, like, I think they're still traumatized. It was a bad situation that I think just kept getting worse. So runners were overheated and medical stations filled up, 911 calls spiked, 185 runners went to the emergency room, and one died. It was so bad that officials, including George, who we should mention again, this was his first year as the medical director of the marathon, they made the decision to call off the race before it had finished. And that's pretty much unheard of in a major race like this. I mean, the people who were participating in it didn't even believe it was true when they heard. Yeah, that the race was called off, like they were still running and the race was over. People just kind of stopped them on the course and said, you have to stop running now. Go home. (laughs) So the stakes are really high. And this pre-race huddle in 2015 is a reminder that the work they do, the volunteers, the medical staff, everyone, the work they do is serious. Exactly. And it's an important piece of a bigger puzzle. 2007 was a decade ago, and since then, Chicago has undergone a massive reboot, complete with that NASA-like command center. So when bad things happen, if the weather is wonky or when somebody's heart stops, George and his team are able to mobilize to give runners the best possible odds. To give Richard the best possible odds. Richard and his wife get in his car and find a parking spot near-ish to the race start. They make their way to the Hilton on Michigan Avenue. It's right across the street from Grant Park where the race begins. Richard's always liked the Hilton. He lives near Chicago, but he's Polish. And the Hilton is the host hotel for the marathon, so all the international runners stay there. Richard loves the vibe, so he hangs out there until it's time to run. Richard is in the second wave of runners. At 8.26, he crosses the starting line. At around mile five, he's feeling not terrible, but not great. I mean, he's a little tired. He hadn't trained that well, remember, and he's getting older. Between the start and mile six, there are four aid stations. Richard just cruises right on by them. I mean, he's not injured. He's just a little fatigued. In these early miles, the pack is thick. Everyone is doing their best to find a place that feels comfortable. And Richard runs conservatively at about a 12-minute-per-mile pace. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't trained very well for this race, but overall, Richard thinks of himself as in really good shape. And he's definitely the healthiest one in his family. His brothers have had some recent health problems. Not too long before the race, one of Richard's brothers went in for a doctor's appointment. And this brother, he'd already had to have stents put in his arteries to keep them clear. But at his most recent appointment, the doctor said that his stents weren't working anymore. And so this brother, he required quadruple bypass surgery. One week before Richard ran, surgeons operated on his brother's heart. 
Before that, a different brother had also gone through quadruple bypass surgery. So heart problems run in Richard's family. But Richard, he didn't worry about his own body failing him for two reasons. First, he was a runner, a runner who completed marathons, no less. He assumed that running protected him, and, you know, many of us would. After all, I mean, his brothers weren't out there covering all those miles. Second, one of his brothers had warned him what to watch out for. It was a feeling like someone sitting on your chest. Richard didn't feel anything that matched that description. So Richard wasn't at all concerned about his heart when he started the race. Neither was his wife. But they'd had this arrangement during every marathon. He'd call her every hour just to check in. In 2015, he calls her around mile five, and he gives his brief update. She assumes that this update will be one of many. And then Richard keeps running. About 40 miles away, Richard's daughter Anna is watching his progress from her home. I usually would go with them. They would either pick me up from the house or we would meet up over here and I would go to the marathon. This marathon, I did not go with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was just him and my mom that left in the morning. And um, what I did is when I knew that he started running, I started tracking him on the app. She isn't too concerned about her dad either. I mean, he's done the marathon so many times, but still. I kept looking at the app, trying to see how he's doing and his time. And um, suddenly I noticed that this little stick person that's supposed to be running, it's stuck in one spot. Um, I think after about half an hour, I started texting my mom, ask her what's going on. And she wasn't answering, so I started um, getting worried. On Sheridan Road, a little north of Belmont Avenue, a small group of runners begins to gather. A slim man with gray hair and a matching mustache has fallen. His head rests on the double yellow lines that run down the center of the road. Around 9.50 a.m., George is in the command center. A call comes in. You know, runner down. We have a runner down, and it sounds like a full cardiac arrest. Wow. So if that's me, I'm I'm feeling like this sinking feeling, like this is the year, this is the year. It's it's happening. What what did you feel? Um, I, I don't know if I necessarily think about it in that way. I I think my my first response always, you know, one where is it, um, and you know. Who's the closest? What response team can get there as, as soon as possible? And, and, and between our personnel on, on the streets, from bike teams, golf cart teams, our medical volunteers, this is where the work you've done all year long, um, you, hope, you, know, you hope comes together. Um, you also need a little luck. You know, you, you hope that a runner steps in. You hope that someone recognizes that their fellow runner has, has a significant issue. The bib number IDs Richard Shikorsky, 66. The Red Cross also pulls up his emergency contact information, that information his wife insisted he put on the back of his bib. We spoke with his wife, um, you know, almost I immediately, probably within the first two to five minutes of when this had happened. We knew he was a runner. We knew that he had run many, many marathons before. Um, and so we were hoping that that also would be protective for him. Explain protective. Richard's heart had carried him through 26.2 miles before, and more than once. 
Whatever was happening, George hoped that meant Richard's body was fit and strong enough to survive it. But he'd still need assistance, and quickly. George knows what happens to people who have a sudden cardiac arrest. Every second Richard lays on the ground without a heartbeat and without help, his body breaks down. Three to five minutes without oxygen, and Richard's brain and all his other vital organs would sustain irreparable harm. On the off chance he was resuscitated during that time, he'd likely have brain damage. He might live, but he probably wouldn't be able to do the things he loves. Running, work on his house, play chess. Soon, within eight to ten minutes, his organs would fail completely. He'd be dead. For good. So this is not some generic feeling that everybody must move quickly. It's an urgent need to get to Richard within this critical window before it closes. Time almost stops, um, and, and you're focused in on one individual uh, of 45,000. And Deanna Rexigel was about to stumble upon him. Deanna's just a few miles into her first ever marathon. She's feeling a little nervous about a lingering calf injury, so she's taking it easy when she sees a man crash to the ground about 100 yards ahead of her. She sprints up and checks for a pulse. He doesn't have one. Deanna starts chest compressions. A crowd begins to form around Richard and Deanna. Another marathoner named Angie Bernadis. She's the one in black with the tattoos and the bright yellow hat that we heard from at the beginning of the story. She slows down to see what's going on. Deanna's doing chest compressions, so Angie kneels down and starts mouth to mouth. Here's Angie. I remember at one point, too, I was shouting out if somebody can go find a defibrillator. So I was kind of looking up every now and then to see if somebody had found one. And Did you talk to her? Did you talk to the other person who was helping out at all? No, we were just all kind of focused in trying to, um, you know, help Richard out. I remember Deanna saying, uh, come on, Richard, stay with me. And um, just kind of focused on him. As marathoners stream by, still no pulse. Uh, we know where and when these incidents occur. Um, the chances of survival really are reliant upon um, bystanders, are really reliant upon their fellow runners, individuals who are at the scene who can step in um, and bridge uh, that ability for them to survive. And, and, and you know, hands-only CPR, the use of defibrillators, making sure that there's access to those types of things uh, is, is quite honestly the outcome of a good situation versus a bad situation. That's the little bit of luck that he talked about earlier, right? Exactly. The one big important step in the race to save Richard's life that George can't control. But that doesn't mean he doesn't try. All year long, George tries to get information about hands-only CPR in front of runners. Explain hands-only. The last time I took CPR, admittedly, a long time ago, mouth-to-mouth was part of it. Right. The American Heart Association changed this a few years ago. They found that when people who weren't medical professionals performed hands-only CPR, it was actually just as effective as mouth-to-mouth with chest compressions. And the other big thing is that people are more likely to do it. Fascinating. So George does whatever he can to get that information out. The emails runners get before race day include emergency preparedness information, and there's even a link to an instructional video. And George trains lots of professional organizations in town, all with the hope that somebody anybody will step in to save someone's life. And you need them in that crucial three to five minute period, before the lack of blood and oxygen damages organs beyond repair, or before they shut down completely. 
Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. When you ran the Chicago Marathon, did you learn how to do hands-only CPR? Um, I didn't, although the first time I ran it, in my defense, was before the American Heart Association changed the rules. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but still, you know, George is really casting a wide net here. We don't have exact numbers on this, but let's say 5% of people learn how to do it ahead of time. That's a little more than 2,200, and that's really not bad considering how packed the race is, especially in the first miles where Richard collapsed. Uh, the reality is is that their chance of survival is, is dependent upon those around them at that time. Uh, sometimes you'd be surprised. All it takes is one person, one person who feels comfortable that would step in. That one person can become the, the leader in getting others to assist because truly it takes a team to save someone's life. George didn't know it then, but two runners had stepped in to help. When the paramedics arrive, they take over care of Richard. But Richard still doesn't have a pulse. And that's how the runners, Deanna and Angie, leave him. You know, all of this kind of happens like like a relay race. Some people from the race, they jump in and they help with Richard. And then the paramedics arrive and they take over and you don't know what happens to Richard after that. But the reality is, is that a relay team, they work truly together and you know that that next player is going to get to the next stage but for Angie and Deanna they really they didn't know they did their part and then walked away they had no idea how their team did well what happened after that moment to Richard to George and the runners around him that's after the break So the last we heard of Richard, his care had just been transferred to the paramedics. He was still unconscious. His heart had stopped. Angie saw the emergency team set up their defibrillator, and she and Deanna run on. Their work was done. No one, including Richard himself, knew exactly what had happened to him and why. Cindy, you went somewhere pretty extraordinary this February, February 2017. I did. I went to Bolingbrook, Illinois, which is not that extraordinary in and of itself. It's about an hour outside the city. But I went to meet Richard at his home. Hello, Cindy. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm fine. Okay. It's so good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me over. Thanks. You must be And who's this? This is Bentley. Hi, Bentley. How are you? <laughs> Hi, I sat down with Richard and his daughter Anna in Richard's living room to talk about the marathon a year and a half ago. His wife Ishka was there too, but she didn't want to talk on tape. <laughs> Extra special greeting. So how, how was it? It was totally normal. It was this bright, sunny day in February, like the way it sometimes is in winter in Chicago. Light was streaming into their entryway in this spotless, spacious suburban home. Bentley is this little white fluffball of a dog, and he curled up next to us while we talked. I don't know why, but I was kind of shocked by how average it all seemed. Yeah, well, I mean, you just done all this reporting about how he didn't have a heartbeat, and, you know, there he was in front of you. Right. He was totally alive, and he had no visible trace of that trauma that he'd endured a few years earlier. Did he have any recollection of what happened to him? Kind of, yes and no. 
I mean, he remembers that one minute he's running and he remembers feeling tired. And then he remembers kind of feeling like he was falling. And he thought, I wanted to make sure I fell down on my back. And that's, that's what last thing what I remember. And the next thing he knows, he's on a stretcher without any idea of how he got there. He doesn't know his heart stopped and he doesn't know that some of the people who tried to save him think he's dead. And this I remember. Um, this was, um, they put oxygen mask, a mask on my face and this bothered me a lot. Oh, I hate this because uh, so I wanted to throw up and I asked them to take it out, and they no, 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 no. <laughs> and they yell all the time to me, stay with us, stay with us. When Richard got to the hospital, he asked someone to call his wife. Remember, he has no idea she's already talked to the medical director of the race, that at this point, she understands more about what happened to him than he does. He'd miss his next check-in, and he didn't want her to worry. So he's telling them to call her, and... And I tried to get from my mind, and I couldn't. I couldn't uh, remind myself uh, my phone number, her phone number, my home phone number, nothing. They asked me about Social Security, and boom, I told them straight. (laughs) Richard had no idea how bad it had gotten. How, for many minutes... Richard lay on Sheridan Road in the middle of the Chicago Marathon without a pulse until his cardiologist stopped by his hospital room. He asked me, Mr. Sikorsky, do you know what's happened to you? And he told me, you were dead. I remember these words. And that time, for sure, he got my attention. As runners, we hear about these cases of sudden cardiac arrest on the course, and they're terrifying. They sound like pretty much the worst thing that could happen when you're running a race. So when I went to meet Richard, I wanted to ask him something. I wanted to ask him if he regretted his decision at the expo to run the marathon. I wondered if he thought he might have been better off sitting this race out. I mean, he loved this race, but consider what happened. Before I could even get to it, Richard volunteered an answer to this question. And this was uh, the, the best decision probably I ever made in my life, just to run, because this accident happened during the marathon. Uh, and this way, maybe I, I survived, only because of this. Okay, I, I think we need to stop here for a second. Because this marathon, the marathon where he was undertrained, the marathon where he collapsed on the course and died, that, that was the best decision of his life? Absolutely. Because he had a sudden cardiac arrest when he was running a marathon, his odds of survival improved dramatically. Overall, just 8% of people survive sudden cardiac arrest. But when it happens during a marathon, your chances of pulling through actually jump from 8% to 30%. That's still not great, but it's substantially better than if you were to experience it just about anywhere else. Wow. So he's not just saying it's one of the best decisions of his life. He's saying that his decision probably saved his life. Exactly. Imagine for a second. 
that Richard's sudden cardiac arrest had happened when he'd been home alone, or out on his usual neighborhood running loop, or even driving to one of the rental properties he owns. How long would it have taken him to get help? Maybe a few minutes? Maybe a few hours? And remember, 10 minutes without help, and it's game over. It might be helpful here to understand a little about cardiology. Now, when most people think about someone collapsing from heart problems, they think of a heart attack. But sudden cardiac arrest, what stopped Richard's heart, it's not the same thing. A heart attack is a plumbing problem. It usually happens when clogged arteries block blood flow to the heart. Yes, it can be deadly, but it doesn't always kill quickly. Yeah, in fact, you can be walking your dog, start having a heart attack, and then turn around and walk home, either sit down on the couch to rest or decide to drive yourself to the hospital. You can be having a heart attack and then start Googling symptoms of a heart attack. I have interviewed people who have done this, and by the way, don't do it. It's not recommended. You still need treatment, you still need it fast, and getting it can save your life. But with sudden cardiac arrest, there's no second guessing. It's an electrical problem. People who have it collapse instantly because it's essentially a short circuit in your cardiovascular system. Think of it like flipping the off switch on your heart. It's what happens when you keep texting after the low battery warning. Your phone, or in Richard's case, your heart, it just plain stops working and you collapse. When Richard was taken to the hospital, doctors performed a test called an angiogram on Richard. And they found out how bad my artery were. And this, they couldn't believe it, and I couldn't believe it. Because one was close to 100% black. Mm. Others, uh, 80, 85. Then, they, how could you get to seventh mile? <laughs> and I don't know, but I did. <laughs> so his running, it hadn't protected him completely from the heart problems that affected his family. Those blocked arteries, the plumbing problems... They were there all along. They're what triggered the electrical misfire. Something like this would have happened eventually, even if Richard had decided not to run the race. The fact that Richard was alive, awake, and talking to a cardiologist at all, that's the luck. The luck that George, the marathon's medical director, was talking about. The luck that the people around Richard would jump in to help him in that crucial four minutes, the time between his heart stopping and the paramedics arriving. But in that luck was a mystery. In the days and weeks that followed Richard's sudden cardiac arrest, Richard pieced together what happened in those minutes of darkness. And why. He learned paramedics used a defibrillator to shock his heart back into action. They loaded him on a golf cart and took him to an ambulance. And from there, to a hospital about a mile away. In fact, Richard jokingly refers to the hospital as Mile 8. And while he was at the hospital, Richard found out what caused his heart to stop. But he still had one big unanswered question. He didn't know who came to his aid immediately after his sudden cardiac arrest. Richard's daughter, Anna, was on the case. She couldn't really help with his heart, but this was something she could do for her dad. So after visiting him in the hospital one day, she came home and put a call out on Facebook. She wondered if anyone saw her father fall, and if anyone could tell her something about the person or the people who saved his life. I would sit on Facebook and I would re return messages for the next three, four hours to like one, two o'clock in the morning. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Um, I had a lot of messages. I had a lot of people, you know, telling me that they saw what happened and, um, 
you know, they would run by, they would pray. And how did it feel to, to open your inbox and see all that? Chokes me every time. Um, I get, I get very emotional because, um, this was the first time I saw how wonderful the running community is and, um, how everybody just stepped in together and tried to help me. Um, I mean, people from all over United States knew what's going on. Imagine... People that I know in Michigan find out from somebody else, not from me, about my dad. One runner sent Anna a picture. This is great because actually my dad was asking. My dad, I remember my dad asking mm. me like, no one took a picture, no one took a video. I'm like, dad, you know. It... After us talking to each other, she goes, this is what I have. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much because my dad was asking for it. Mm. It, but when I look at it, it's totally different the way my dad looks at it. Um, to me, emotions right away. Every time I look at these pictures, I, I, I feel all these emotions running through me. To my dad, it's like, it's just a picture, just a person lying there. And I'm like, to me, this is my dad on the ground, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what it must be like to, to see that. In the picture, Richard is on his back. There are people around him so you can't see his face, but his legs poke out from the crowd. Those white, medium-height socks and black-and-white Nikes. You can see his shirt behind other people's legs. For a marathon photo, it's startling because of its stillness. The picture, it also contained clues. Anna didn't know who they were then, but she saw the people in the picture helping her dad and she wanted to know who they were. Meanwhile, Richard had surgery on his blocked arteries. Quintuple bypass surgery, to be exact. Doctors cracked open his sternum and replaced all five of the major blood vessels to his heart with grafts from other parts of his body. Quintuple bypass surgery, it is definitely major surgery. But Richard's regular running had made his body strong and fit. His doctors, they told him it was easier to perform than it might have been otherwise, and his recovery went smoothly and quickly. So, how is he? He's great. Okay, okay so okay. you ready to run, Richard? Yes, I am ready to run. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, lady first. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, let's go. Uh, Which direction do you usually go here? Usually when I go, I track... I got my circle, but we will go a little bit on my circle. How do you feel about running overall? I mean, I know it's always been important to you, but has that has that changed since since the marathon in 2015, or do you think about it differently? No, I still love it, and I put new goals in front of me, but. I understand I have to listen what my doctor has to say, but he's on my side with this. I love to do many things. Work around my house, 
to make my wife happy running Richard's new goal to shave more than an hour off his recent marathon time Richard wants to qualify for Boston to honor the two first-time marathoners who gave him CPR on the course. So Anna did find out who they were. Deanna Rexigel and Angie Bernadis. Thanks to Facebook. It turns out they're both nurses. They met in person a year after Richard died on the course. Richard gave them both a bracelet inscribed with the words. Angel from seventh mile. And uh, during that time when I gave them, I asked them if... They were ever, ever run. They wear this bracelet, then this way, uh, people around supposed to feel safe <laughs> because of them. It was one small token of appreciation for something that, frankly, you can never really repay someone for. Well, Richard, you mentioned you have a collection. Do you have like your medals and photos in mm -hmm. one place somewhere? Yeah, I can bring can it. You yeah, sure. <laughs> I I can you show me? I would love to see. Those are all of his medals. So. This is my hardware. You oh, see? All right. Okay. Yeah, you you've see? got a whole okay. Ziploc bag okay. full one, of medals. One medal I have to show you. Yeah. Because everything starts uh, summer from a cell. Uh, uh, oh, this fish, for example, I recognize this is La Cell Bank. Mm -hmm. This is the last one. This is the last one, 16. Yeah. Oh, when I run with Dina. Yeah. Did you ever see the pictures uh, from finish line, mine and Dina? No, That's Deanna, one of his angels. The year after his sudden cardiac arrest, he ran the Chicago Marathon with one of the two women who saved him. In 2016? Yeah, probably. Yes. Incredible. Uh, we're running together, and this is finish line. Oh, wow. So there there you are. Yes. Next to each other, holding and, hands. Yes, on finish line. And uh, that's what was an uh, amazing feeling. Finally, we finished. Oh, this was before. He shows me pictures of this day on his cell phone. He hasn't gotten around to printing them out yet. This was uh, with Dina with medals. And, uh, uh, <laughs> You're giving and the thumbs up yeah, there. <laughs> and we, yeah, and we... Both this is a little weird, but they took a selfie at the spot they first met, where Richard collapsed and where his heart stopped. And in this picture, they both look thrilled. They are beaming. But remember, I had just been looking at this other picture of him at that same spot, and it made me feel a little funny. I mean, that's the picture where he's on the ground, dead. I couldn't help but be like a little nervous about him running. And I asked Anna, his daughter, how she felt. And, and how, did, how did you and your mom feel about that? Were you nervous at all? Or? To tell you the truth, yes. I remember being in the hospital and um, my dad constantly asking the doctors, like, can I run, can I run? And me going like, cut it, cut it, tell him no, no. It was a quite a scare for us, for me and my mom. And when he started talking about running, all we could think about was like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen again. No, we don't want him running. We... But you, you can't stop him. <laughs> but Richard's doctor, who's also a runner, gave him the all clear. This time, though, Richard trained. He had to. 
he was no longer Richard, the guy who runs a couple of races a year and who can hop into a marathon when he's inspired. Right. He was Richard, who'd had his chest sawn open. He had to recover from his major heart surgery. But he was motivated. You see, sometimes it's difficult to tell somebody, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't find the words uh, really express how, how I feel about both of them. Uh, I think this will be a very, very long relationship, you know. I'm old, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, and we will run many, many races, I hope. As I was finishing up my interview with Richard, he pulled out... One medal I wanted to show you... Uh, because it's international. I run in Warsaw, I told you one. Why it's important for me? Uh, oh, this one. Oh, it's a little bit, I don't know why it's uh, so, so a little bit damaged, but anyway, on one side, like you see, this is uh, from city, and on other, Side, it's uh, it's runner, mm-hmm. and this runner, it's exactly Emil Zatopek. Oh yeah, and Emil Zatopek. He's a famous Czech runner. In fact, he had a nickname, the Czech Express. In the 1952 Olympics in Helsinki, he won gold in the 5K, the 10K, and amazingly enough, in the marathon. And this is his motto. It's written down in. Polish language, but I will transla- translate to you. Okay. It's, he's saying, if you wanted to go for a run, run a mile. If you wanted to change your life, run a marathon. <laughs> and honestly, he's so right about that. Mm-hmm. He's so right. Human Race is produced by me, Rachel Swaby, and Cindy Kuzma. We're edited by David Weinberg. Our theme music is by Danny Koch. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's World and the editor-in-chief of Human Race. Human Race is a proud member of Panoply. I wanted to say thank you for waiting. I'm so glad we're back. And I also wanted to give a shout out to another podcast that I think maybe Human Race listeners would enjoy. The Outside Podcast. The Outside Podcast brings outside magazines' tradition of literary storytelling into the audio world. Their Science of Survival series presents sound-rich, immersive stories about how people endure extraordinary events. And in this latest episode, the show chronicles the remarkable recovery of an extreme athlete who lived through a dramatic paragliding accident, then went right back to the high-risk sport that nearly killed him despite no longer having the use of his arms or legs. Anyways, check it out. Thank you for listening, and I usually say here, I'll see you in two weeks, but actually we have a special Boston Marathon edition of the podcast coming out on Marathon Monday, so check your feeds. See you next week.